Hello and welcome to the very 168th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, the podcast that is all about board games, board games, and the people who love board games. My name is Matt Lees, and today I'm joined by Ava Foxfort. Hello there, Matt Lees. Hello there, Ava Foxfort. And gosh, have we got some games that we're going to talk about today? The answer to that question is yes. It was a rhetorical question, but I've answered it. We're going to be talking about... The Great Zimbabwe. And... The Gallo Wrist. <laughs> it's Dude. much harder to do that last one than a good rhythm, isn't it? Yeah, there's there's not there's, le- there's fewer syllables. What are you going to do? So we're going to be talking about two quite chunky, heavy games here, getting into the grit. So if this is not your speed, no worries. You can just skip this whole episode. Talking of speed, though, uh, I'm very pleased to have this episode number. This is 168 is possibly one of my favourite numbers. There was a, a great bus I used to love in London. The 168 used to take me through from Old Kent Road. Oh, I love the 168. It was my favourite bus. Um, haven't been on it for years. So anyway, um, I hope that if there's anyone else out there who's also going, yes, 168 as a number for some reason, then um, happy 168 day to you. So we talked about The Great Zimbabwe on a live podcast, but we didn't go into much detail because whenever it's a big, heavy, complicated game of any kind, or anything really intricate and interesting, we tend to butcher them uh, during live podcasts because we're very tired and slightly stressed or anxious sometimes because we're on a stage in front of hundreds of people. So we talked about very briefly the fact that uh, it had cows in it and that I was evil, but now we're going to come back and actually have a proper chat about it because um, I think me and Ava particularly thought this one was very interesting. Definitely worthy of a proper chat. It's definitely interesting. Like, good is a different question, but interesting, like you can very easily say, ooh, about a lot of things that are going on here. I mean, Splotter is basically... In a way, it makes sense. It's a bit like an onomatopoeia thing. Splotter does sound like somebody squeezing some sort of substance onto a wall. And then somebody in response going, ooh, because it's maybe strange, but that's an interesting... What is that? It's kind of a rainbow oil that's everywhere now. Thanks for that, Splotter. And they've done it again. They've splattered some more rainbow oil onto our wall and curtains once again. Uh, This came out a while ago, to be fair, uh, The Great Zimbabwe. It is in pre-order at the moment, isn't it? So it will be available more soon, and that's kind of why we're covering it. Um, It's, it's, It's an old one, but it's becoming available again now, as tends to be the way with the Splotter seasons. Now, this is a game that has a very interesting curve to it. First of all, the Great Zimbabwe, you are all playing different tribes out in Zimbabwe and you're all producing goods and spreading around your influence uh, across the the country, whilst a very abstract country, I should add, a grid, whilst trying to produce goods and get the goods you need to be performing rituals to better please the gods. And at the end of the game, basically you want to try and get to a certain level of um kind of god pleased points wasn't it wasn't that the official term in the manual i believe god pleased points yes god no, pleased I points. think sadly it is just victory points isn't it but it might be it really might be but basically you had to try and achieve things by making these bigger and bigger uh, sacrifices to the gods in terms of like you know generally speaking quite nice sacrifices or nice offerings rather than like any kind of nasty stuff it's like you make some masks you make a delightful throne uh, you make some urns and pots it was much more about offerings you're making these offerings to the gods in order to carry their favors however you can also be taking 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 because you can actually be getting the blessings of the gods and you can be gaining powers effectively throughout the game 
in a way which is quite willy-nilly up to a point. <laughs> and this is where the game becomes very interesting. And the fact that it's like, yes, you can. You can have this this blessing of this this power from a god. However, doing that is going to add this many points to the score that you already have to meet in order to win the game. So you start off having to get to like 40, I think, or maybe 30. It's irrelevant. You've got to get to 30 god points. But then for every one of these new abilities or new... Because sometimes they're like really cool special abilities, but sometimes they're just like the facility to make pots, right? Every time you, you buy an ability to do something in the game, it costs you additional points that you're then going to have to earn in order to cross your threshold that you require to get to to actually win the game. And this is probably worth focusing on, right, is the fact that like you're not, while it's tracking victory points the whole time or something with a funny name for victory points as most games do it's not because like a lot of splotter it's not because you're trying to get the most points it's because there's a line that you are racing to you have to be this yes. impressive and basically you are more impressive if you can do that with less so the less powerful you are the less far along you have to get but the harder it is to get there and finding your little balance and your little squeeze point between those things is going to really, that's the core of the game, right? And that's what makes this one of those plotter games where you could kind of pick your strategy early on and you'll have to adapt to it, but there's routes and paths through the kind of tech tree of powers that you can pick. And part of the game, certainly in terms of long time replayability, is going to be, can you find the most efficient routes and can you execute them successfully? Which is tedious and interesting at the same time, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's that kind of dry pickle um, that, that gamers just love. <laughs> I really love a dry garlic chutney, just for the record. Uh, it's a really top Indian pickle. Oh, yeah. No, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. We'll, we'll accept it. But... Yeah, it's it's in a way it's strange, right? Because some of these mechanics feel on paper like what's the difference between what's the difference between okay, well at the start of this game I'm going to take the blessing of this god and I'm going to buy these industries, right? And taking out a loan, right? It's 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 strange. I think the interesting thing about this game is there's an, it's effectively a loan but you've no choice in it. It's not like you can you can build up, you can curry the favor so then you don't have to take it here. It's like the only way to get anything is by pushing back your own marker in terms of how far you then need to get to win the game. Um which I found interesting because I, I approached this as we joked about on the podcast. I approached this in I was viewing this in a hyper capitalist way because I was fixating on the similarities I think between this and Food Chain Magnate, another game from Splotter. And because of that, I was very much like I was VC funded Zimbabwean tribe. I was going, right, OK, I'm going to just get loads of stuff really early on. I'm going to get into massive God point debt, effectively, meaning that I had to get like twice as far up the track. Almost first round in the game, second round of the game. I had so much further to go now than anyone else. But I then developed this terrifying blockade of an economy. Um, that caused everyone else grief and allowed me to be just whirring up more and more cows, which were the, the, was the economy in the game, um, in a way that made it look like I just had the game locked down and everyone else was in a lot of trouble. But then the other interesting thing about this game, and in a way, I think maybe this is the point, of the reason I didn't like it as much, is what I love about Food Chain Magnate is it's a game, it's an explosion in a box. You all just try and explode yourself with money as best as you can as quickly as you can but then one person is just going to explode better than everyone else and they will go into orbit and the game will immediately end you know it has that cutoff point of being like if you make this much money the game immediately ends 
Whereas in this, I did the explosion. But then for a game that doesn't appear to have any walls, there is a huge wall in this game that changes everything. And that is the fact that there is a, a finite cap of how many god points you can be pushing yourself how many vps you can push yourself up the track until it's like hey you know what that's the max you can do now which means you cannot buy anything else in terms of new technologies or new abilities and that is huge and it did mean that the game had this strange plateau in the middle where we'd all crunched and all crunched and then at the point in a game where you would usually start to see things kind of easing up with people going, ah, oh, now my engine works beautifully and I'm making all of this stuff and it's all working well. We all just had to, like, you get to a point where suddenly your engine kind of breaks and you have, we were really crunching right up until the very end of the game, which for some people I think would be, you might be listening to this now and going, oh, that sounds great. But for us, oh my gosh, it was it was exhausting, wasn't it? It was, it was absolutely knackering. And this is one of the weird beef that I had with this game that we talked about in the last podcast was that there's not enough change in the game and like the fact that this game basically has a final administration phase where you have to still be thinking about everything you're doing as hard as you have but you're not really making decisions so much as looking for a route through the map you've already built like you were talking about blockades earlier and i think one of the things to flag up about this is that especially the way we talked about it it sounds like this is like oh you build an engine and then you work see how that engine works but it's like you build an engine that completely devastates other people's engines that is tied in with everybody else's other engines and has loads of weird ways that you can get in the way of the infrastructure that people are building so even though this isn't a game in the same way as a lot of games about like roads and routes and paths like it is about interconnected infrastructure and the way that different people are playing into that system it's also is quite capitalist in this kind of like you're having to buy stuff off each other. You're having to set up trade routes. If you start being the person who sells like the better, what is it? You turn masks and you can take a mask and turn it into a throne. And once thrones are in the game, nobody wants masks anymore, except yeah, for the purposes yeah. of building the next layer up. And all of this stuff just means, and, and the whole point of the game is to build these monuments that require a variety of different things. And building different things becomes harder and harder and harder and harder. And all of that, crunches into a thing but at some point it becomes this thing where you're watching the machine roll and you've just got to see whether it works and if that machine or it was, crushes you or whether it crushes you and if that machine was easy to run and didn't like slowly burn your brain and require you to think really carefully about what everyone is doing about how you're going to be in turn order how much you can afford to bid on a very unusual auction that doesn't just like have you paying stuff but giving stuff to other players so you've got to take account of both of those things which is clever and wonderful but you don't have enough cows to do that distribution <laughs> to do that math to do the thinking in your head so it makes a lot of things more difficult than it needs to be and the cows is a symbol of that uh because yes. there's exciting yes. difficulty in this game and then there is the administratively difficult in this game yeah um, i think that's it and i think that you know when we talk about that not enough change we mean that specifically in terms of as we mentioned in the previous podcast splitting a cow can you split one of these gold cows for five silver cows please um and yeah just the just the, the mathematics you're constantly having to do in your head with cows not being able to have a big handful of them and having to keep changing them for tokens and stuff is just enough to cause you a real headache especially as you say the fact that you're bidding each round for turn order by yeah not just bidding a number but then moving them along this track it's really cool but when you get to the final rounds of the game 
mathing out what the right amount is to bid is just so complicated that I couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, I could have done, but I would have needed to go and get some paper. You know, it's yeah. it's not just like, because it's not just like, oh, I can afford six. It's like, if I give six, I'm going to get back two, but Ava's going to get one and Tom's going to get two. So that's going to, it's like, whoa, it's, it, it's, it's not yeah. good. It's, it's like, it's really interesting, but then it becomes a horrible rod that is then placed on a poor cow's back. Yeah. And again, I, I've talked about um, the scoring and the way that you kind of like explode out or gently grow out, but increasingly your 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 basically margin for what you need to get to to win the game increases alongside that. But yeah, the, the key thing is the fact that the main game itself um, takes place on this shared grid of plane spaces and water and resource locations. And you all placing down wooden pieces on the board to effectively say that, look, I'm building a hub here. That means my people uh, are going to be able to access all of the resources areas within that space. And it's much more abstracted than something like Food Chain Magnate, which obviously has this idea of people walking down streets in a way which is, once you've got your head around it, that's quite a, an easy thing to understand. This simply has these nodes acting as... Um, kind of like uh, like service station stops on a big journey. You know, you'd be like, okay, well, look, you can only move up to three spaces and then you have to stop and have a break. So the idea is that then you have to pay each person. So you can use part of someone else's network to get through to an area, but then you have to be giving them cows just to be stepping on their spaces. And then also the fact that you then have these different resource tiles within within range of things that then you are expending and if you want to make uh, a mask then okay you've got to take some of these resources and then they'll refresh next round but the, the thing i'm getting at here which may become clear as i'm struggling here to explain the interconnected web of resources being eaten up and moved around and oh you've used that there you can't use that there but i'm going to use that is that the other problem and this is the biggest problem i have with the game frankly is that it's it's very messy like when you, for a game which is splotter blank in many regards, it does have some art in it. It's not like Food Chain Magnate, like this is a basically a, you know, an Excel sheet. It is, it has got some color and some art on the board, but when you start stacking up all of these different pieces on the board, because you are stacking up tokens as well to make your, your hubs more vertical, which are worth more points, that combined with the tiles going down to show that where resources are being made and which resources have been taken does create a very muddy scene. And it's not just that it's muddy, right? It's the fact that um, that would be kind of okay if it was static, but it changes constantly because it changes as other people use resources, they're not available to you. So on your turn, you will have to reassess the entire board work out the things that you can do to change the shape of the board and work out whether any of that is enough to get you all of these different resources from all of these different places. And if you want to play really well, working out which of those ways of doing that will um, uh, do the worst for your opponents as well. And that's yeah. so much every turn, every five minutes to be recalculating, every time you come back to the table, having to go and be like... Okay, how does this actually work now? Not just how does this work in broad terms. How does this? How much has this changed since last term time I did this calculation? 
And you've also got to be trying to predict that change because that's how you yeah. work out how much you can afford to put into the bid. It's and a how nightmare. much of your planning is going to be completely moot if a player goes first next round. I mean, we found in the game we played, and this may have just been an exception in this game, but we found that by the last round, it was simply a case of who's going to go first because whoever's going to go first is going to suck up all of the resources on the board to make like loads of uh, masks and thrones and bracelets and just pack them on a massive big box for God and be like, hey, go look, hey, God's gods collectively i think because there's loads of them um so it was sort of strange you, you collectively built this landscape of of resources that you could collect from and a network of hubs but towards the end it was just a case of like well someone's just going to eat it all up which is fine but again it was that thing of going like how much brain power am i gonna have to try and expend now for the next turn when in reality maybe you'll be able to do 18 things or maybe you'll be able to do none um depending on whether you're first or second you know yeah. it's and the um, bidding for that turn order comes at the expense of like you the, the key here is you have to bid for that turn order and leave yourself enough cattle to be able to actually execute the yes. thing that will win it and so that's exactly. why it's still muddy and you can't actually even calculate it at that point because and, and oh it's 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 great it's a nightmare i don't think many people will like it i i do like it i do want to say before we wrap no up i do here, yeah that i I, re- I quite enjoyed our time with it if i had some substitute cows i think i could really get on with it um i think it is not it's very it's inaccessible it is all of like the it's got all of the challenges that splotter games have but it doesn't have the because i think even food chain magnate for all of its harshness and brutality and weird little maths it's surprisingly accessible like the the route through the day the rules are actually relatively simple and same with antiquity even a lot of the details of it are very simple even if there's a lot of it and you've got to think about it all at once and this just yep. feels a a little bit extra that's that's was a great zimbabwe and uh yeah let's talk about another board let's game. talk about another board game that came out like 10 years ago or something silly but we want to talk about it because we played it recently and we liked it but we didn't but we did no we did wait we did <laughs> So, The Gallerist is a heavy, chunky, Vital Lacerda game, which, unlike um, Great Zimbabwe, has like beautiful art throughout. Although the art that it's about, it's a game about running an art gallery, the art itself is uh, almost immaterial. It's so tiny. It's this tiny piece of the game <laughs> where, like, oh, look, I've got a statue that looks like a blob. And, like, I love the satire of the fact that like you very clearly do not care about that art in any way uh-huh. apart from this is a tool for making me money and improving my reputation. Um, yep. The Gallerist is a ridiculously, considering when you put it on the table, there is like charts and bars and, and arrangements and piles of cards in like every corner of the table every corner of the board the middle of it is these four galleries facing off on a plaza which is covered in meeples of different colors there's these giant uh gallerist meeple things that are about like bigger than my thumb and, and like the whole of my thumb not just the tip the whole thing they're massive massive big chunky things for all of these tracks and economies to keep track of it's a worker placement game and there's four worker placement spots, right? There are four things that you can do. 
It's actually eight things because each of those four spots gives you one of two options. And it's also not just worker placement because when you can always jump into where someone else is or you can often jump into where someone else is, nudging them out and giving them a little bonus, but you get to do the thing. So it doesn't have that same restriction. Like there's a flow to it. But there's also problems because because you can't do the same thing. You kind of want to be bumped off sometimes, even though that's giving someone else something more. It's getting you something and it's giving you the freedom to maybe like hammer the same action over and over again, which can be really powerful. And all of this stuff is really exciting. What are you doing with those actions? Well, the four themes of it are essentially like there's contracts. So there's going and picking up cards that is like, I want a piece of art that is like this and I will buy it if you find it. Um, there's artists where you go and you find artists and you you sign them and or, or you commission them to make a piece of art for you in the future or you just take some art that they have made since then. And there's the uh, social media area, which is basically just promotion and marketing. And it is just, there's getting new people is part of that area, but it's also hyping up the artist that you buy. So the ideal thing to do is find an undiscovered artist hype them up loads, make their art really valuable, sell the art that you've bought from them for cheaper because the art is directly priced based on how popular they are and make them go into the moon and sell the art that you didn't care about in the first place and you don't really care about the artist. It's all just tools for you to manipulate. Uh, the final area is more complicated to explain because I didn't entirely understand what it was about, but it's about sending your assistants off to go to foreign <laughs> markets and go to auctions. Yeah. And it's actually just one auction that happens at the end that we didn't quite understand how that worked. And we did manage to to run it at the end, but there was a lot of, oh, is that what it means? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it didn't affect either of us, but it was like, oh, well, that makes more sense now. But uh, yeah, having one person heartbroken, but neither of us, which was fine. <laughs> But they still won, so it was all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm quite glad that they won after that misunderstanding because they did also really ace it. And that's one of the things that I think is really nice about this game is that you can definitely see someone ace it. You can see someone have done something imaginative and interesting enough in the game that you're like, oh, wow, that's actually really good. How did you manage to get that many points? And then backtrack and do it. Like, it's not a simple game. It was like probably an hour for us to be taught by someone who had played it a lot. We were still digging mm -hmm. into rules to check check things and make sure that everything was perfect. Um, and I was shocked at how much I liked it. I'm just going to mention quickly that like one of the reasons we wanted to cover this is because uh, Vita Lacerda is very well respected and very popular within the industry for making very hefty heavy games which is often something i like but the main thing that i have played of his this boa and i think a couple of other members of the team have tried that as well um we all bounced very hard off in a way that i think has made us be a little bit um cooler on vita lazada than a, a lot of people like fans of big heavy crunchy games um and so i was keen to try this because i always like giving things a chance if they look interesting it's very pretty it's um ian o'toole art and he just always knocks it out of the park and it's not just pretty but it's very readable to the point that matt worked out a rule was being done wrong because the graphic was different and it's like if you're doing that yeah. then you the, know um, that the art makes sense the iconography and the graphic design i think is like it's possibly second to none i think for a game this fiddly I, I wouldn't even say it's complicated i think it's just fiddly and nuanced 
everything is very interconnected. And even though you've only got these four spaces you can go and activate to do things, there's so much cascade within this. There's so much like, and I've done that, which means I get one of these, which means I get one of these, which means I can do this. And, you know, people having these little turns that kind of not spiral off hugely, but combo together in really pleasing ways. And that element of it is so beautifully signposted on the player boards and on the main board. And the fact that, yes, it took a while to learn the game. But I think that the, the other thing that really landed for me is that there's some abstraction that doesn't, make as much sense but the majority of the systems do just make sense when explained like you do this because it because of the premise because of the idea of like okay well like you know for example a big chunk of the board are these just artists that are on the there's eight different artists in the game and and you're going to be like okay well two of them they all do different things like you have fine art digital art sculpture and uh, photography and then basically you know you're gonna you're gonna sign artists early on but by signing an artist it means you don't even have to buy a piece of their art you're just like you just take their little signature tile and put it on your board and it's these little things of like having these little signature tiles which are kind of fiddly and small and you're like well, I remember that but actually it does make sense and the fact that you just keep that to show people that you've signed that artist you don't have necessarily got any of their work yet or anything but you basically have a right to get their first a piece from them at kind of like that early price at some point you can buy a painting from them for a fiver because you signed them in the early days and now they're worth like 20 million and the fact that across the board also yes we've got this this weird fiddliness of the international markets and the auction um but the core premise altogether yeah is like the only the only way you can win the game is by having loads of money at the end and that's that's that is the it's brilliant right because it's like rather than being like okay However, victory points, you've got all these things, you've got your your influence within the industry, you've got, you know, how much art you have in your gallery, how much art you've shipped out to people, but all it's going to get you at the end is money, and the person with the most money wins. And because of that, it's able to act as this wonderfully tongue-in-cheek simulation of the of the whole art industry in a way which I just found absolutely delightful. And also in the way that we love in games like this. And often I find I don't love in big, heavy Euros where there is actually a, a strong theme. Often I, I like my heavy Euros to be these weird, flat, anodyne, boring things because then you have the space to inject your own humour and fun into it. But in this, it was just so on point. I spent like the entire game just trying to boost my own influence within the industry, right? And I wasn't doing anything. And that was just wonderful. It was just this thing of I was everywhere. <laughs> Everyone knew I was important. I hadn't signed anyone. I hadn't done any art. I wasn't really doing anything. But like, hey, people were talking about me. And that was enough for a long time. Like, And I was doing exactly the opposite, right? I was just going off. And a second I got the tiniest bit of influence, I was just like, right, chuck that reputation away. I'm just going to do this because I want to do this thing now. And like, so everybody hated me, but I was buying all of the stuff before everyone else I was taking the stuff I was making it valuable I was running this really ruthless efficient machine because I did not care about my reputation in any way whatsoever apart from as a thing to bribe and manipulate people into doing yeah. the things that I wanted to quicker and just game the system um and so this is a mechanic that's actually um is also in the more recent um the Red Cathedral by De Vere. And I wasn't familiar at the time that it was also in this. So I really enjoyed that this mechanic. And I think it particularly works well in the Red Cathedral too, of having um, a type of reputation that you can basically just always 
get money by just knocking yourself down to the last reputation marker of having two score tracks within one. I think that was lovely in a world of like maybe making cathedrals too quickly and not being very accountable and just like bunging someone some money because you're in trouble. Um, in this, the idea of yeah, just trading away your reputation for just the immediate hit of something, yeah, of yeah, being yeah, yeah. like, just being like, doesn't matter, get me this, get me this person, um, versus being very careful and building up this, this shining reputation, but perhaps not ever doing anything <laughs> because of that, not ever, not ever taking any risks. And um, I didn't have any art in my gallery <laughs> for like a long time. And um, yeah, and that, but that that stuff is it's great, right? Like that that's the thing that I think impressed both of us with this. Um, that uh, I certainly didn't really see in Lisboa is that the theme of it was both making every element easier to understand because it was much more intuitive than it could have been considering how complicated the rulebook was. Um, not that the rulebook's bad, just there's a lot of clauses and special terms and stuff. Um, but it's the fact that on top of that, on top of making it simpler to play, it was also making it more amusing to play. It was actually selling the yeah. theme. It actually felt like it was about art. It felt like it was mean about the art world. It felt like it allowed us to both inhabit the the character of being someone who is vital to the art industry, but also entirely engaged in it as an industry. And like, and maybe that's not true. Maybe we all really cared about the artists that we were doing, but it didn't matter because at the end of the day, we were there to make money and we were there to move money around. And so this was just pure capitalism, but it was aware of that. And it was, if you choose to read it like that way, which I couldn't not, it is absolutely a biting and cutting satire of that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it reminded me in a way of, uh, there's a great film called The Square, If I'd recommend watching uh, if you're interested in uh, a film-based uh, biting satire of the, the art industry. Um, but yeah, it was funny. It doesn't have to be. There's no, so often when we think about satirical board games, it's like, it's all like tongue-in-cheek jokes, puns, like overt stuff. And this doesn't have to do anything. It doesn't have to do anything. It's like, there's no funny characterization. There's no jokes. There's no like... Uh, it's just the mechanics it's just the mechanics and the way they work and the way that, that you play this game and it inherently just mirrors at least stereotypes of wh- what we think of this world to be like and from what i know of people who work in it kind of a lot of it is pretty bang on but i think for me what i love the most and what highlighted for me something i've thought about for a long time whenever i'm playing these kind of games i tend to just like fly off to the edge of the space early on and see what happens like both as a means of going okay this is a big, heavy, weird game. How much is this willing to let me play it in a strange way? And secondly, uh, how how much of a bad time will I have if I play this badly? Like, if I have to play a three-hour game and I'm not doing very well, how horrible is that? And I think what I found I loved about this is it was allowed me so much room for abstraction around my own failings. And I saw that around the table, because I didn't even fail the most around the table, to be honest. I was doing all right. But for me... When I played um, Lisboa, it was like I was just failing to collect some bricks of rubble to rebuild a building. And there's not a lot of room for humor within that, right? That was like the fundamental like task. You've got to do this and then you build the market. But we didn't get very far. And it was just like, I, I can't I can't do this. Whereas 
me having someone who who just couldn't buy any art or couldn't sign any artists but was very busy swanning around town meeting people schmoozing getting loads of followers and becoming famous was very funny even though it was technically i was kind of failing at that point and at the same time this collection of people who start wandering around in the plaza only to be sucked into art galleries to be drawn in being like come into my gallery come into my gallery and then they just live there as art buyers or uh or press or you know whatever and having people like unable to get anyone to come to the that was really funny like we, we were playing with someone who just couldn't everyone else kept grabbing all the people as soon as they arrived and they just couldn't get anyone to come into their gallery that had and loads of lovely these... paintings in it and was a brilliant gallery yeah. but no one wanted to come because they were just not but you these but when you have a board which is these four galleries all facing each other like in this big plaza and one of them has just got hardly anyone in it at all um it's just it's funny it's a funny way to be doing badly in a way that um it actually allows you to envision this world and and have rather than just being like this is an abstract system and you are failing to um achieve what you need to within it uh, no i was really surprised by how much i liked it it was heavy it was a long game we must have been playing for about three and a half hours but i didn't find it exhausting in a way that that i bounced off of it i found it kind of like cerebral and interesting and i thought yeah at the end of it i thought yeah i'd absolutely like to play this again and i think you're right i feel like my lisboa impressions are not fair um and i've got to go back to i've got to go back to vital vital lacerda school let's do it let's go back to school thanks to the gallerist that is all we have time for on today's episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, thank you very much. You can tell other people about it. We, If you want to give it a little review on any platform of your choosing, that would be choosing. It's your choice. Just do whatever you want to choose, okay? Um, but that would be lovely. Uh, otherwise, we hope you all have a lovely week and we'll be back next time. Bye! Bye.